0: This is Quarantine Conversations.
1: Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth, and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerlock. ...is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric
0: scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists
1: wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to...
0: Johan Gilchrist.
1: Yoshi, in this series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher?
0: Boy, I'd almost say all of the above. <laughs> it's hard to categorize myself. I mean, I think when you're doing research, in some ways, you're always a student, right? That, that should never leave your uh, approach to science, I think. There's always more you can learn. There's there's more you can learn from your colleagues, uh, from up-and-coming students as well. Um, But because I'm in the second part of my PhD and wrapping it up, I feel less of a student because before I felt just purely like a purely a student. But now I feel more on an even playing field with a lot of professors that I discuss uh, my science with. And... I find that I can read papers more easily and understand lectures even outside of my field more easily, which I think means that I've in some ways um, graduated at least mentally, towards a more advanced understanding of science. So yeah, I I feel like a student, a researcher, certainly a hobbyist. I can look at pictures of volcanic plumes for hours, even though it's not necessarily what I should be working on. So I consider that a hobby. Um, yeah, and and definitely I love teaching too. So all of the above.
1: You're becoming more uh, comfortable with your expertise.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely moments though where I get checked by some more senior professor who has a much better understanding. So then it then I get mentally knocked back down to feeling like a student again. So it's kind of it's a roller coaster ride you could say.
1: <laughs> I often have those feelings too when interacting with our faculty and um and I try to hide some of my ignorance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you are a volcanologist, right?
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: What is a volcanologist?
0: It's a good question. It's actually more varied, I think, than people would assume. Um, I think what comes in mind for a lot of people, especially North America, where the nineteen eighty eruption of Mount St. Helens affected almost everybody in North America, and especially like my parents' generation and and most people their age is in Vancouver and Calgary. They all remember ash falling down and they probably remember pictures of USGS uh, scientists, volcanologists at Mount St. Helens during the eruption and a couple of them perished, unfortunately. Um, and so I think the public perception of a volcanologist is a kind of a sort of like a geologist and and a lot of volcanologists started in geology and going out into the field, going to volcanoes, picking up samples of rocks, um, going to Hawaii. And, you know, there's lots of videos of volcanologists going in with hot, with uh, reflective suits to try to get a fresh sample of lava. Um, That's probably, those are probably the images that people have seen mostly of volcanologists just out there, kind of rugged field scientists. And, that's just one facet of what it is to be a volcanologist. I've done some of that. I've gone to see explosive eruptions in person. Um, But in fact, most of my work is in the laboratory because I'm a volcanologist, but I'm also a fluid dynamicist. So I'm studying the fluid dynamics of volcanoes, particularly how the lava moves underground and then how it erupts into ash plumes and lava fountains above ground. So uh, it requires a, a interdisciplinary approach and there's also a lot of volcanologists that do computer modeling which i'm starting to do as well so really you know the modern day volcanologist strives to have uh, experience in the field experience in the lab and experience with computer modeling and if you can have experience with all three of those then you have a lot of tools a very tool set to tackle some of these very complex problems Uh, So I would say a volcanologist used to be just a rugged field scientist going out there, getting samples, and it was, we we didn't really know much about volcanoes, you know, back in the 50s or even early 1900s, but since then, now you don't have to, there's volcanologists, colleagues I have that have never been to the field, have never actually been to an erupting volcano or even a dormant volcano um, for that matter, but still are very well educated on all things volcanoes. So the, the, the definition has definitely evolved and it's much more varied now. There's many ways to be a volcanologist. Um, but I would say it's, if you wanna be sort of the classic volcanologist, you gotta get your hands dirty. You gotta get out there, you gotta get some ash into your clothes and, and on your face and get some fresh samples to bring back. Every volcanologist usually has some kind of vulcano- volcanic rock, like a piece of basalt or pumice that they use as a paperweight on their desk.
1: That's, uh, that's really interesting. And we don't often think of, um, uh, volcanoes as having a huge fluid comp, uh, um, component, but I guess of course, most of the volcano is liquid, right?
0: Yeah. So the, the volcano edifice itself is made up of, it's like a layer cake. It's made up of multiple layers that came from these, you know, fluid effusive or explosive events that laid down each layer of that edifice. Um, but you know what actually drives an eruption is fluids. It's magma. It could have crystals in the magma. There can be trapped gases in the magma, and then so it's really a multi-phase problem. You got solids. You have fluids, and you have gases all moving underground in the heart of the volcano. Um, and then how this fluid, these different phases, move together or not move together, move at different speeds can really determine how the volcano erupts. Are you gonna get something like Hawaii where stuff oozes out like honey, nice and slowly? Uh, Or are you gonna get something potentially more catastrophic like Mount St. Helens, big explosive eruption and it's hot gases coming out at fast speeds with uh, pumices and ashes and big volcanic bombs. So underground in the heart of the volcano, yeah, fluids kind of dominate. I mean, there's solid state, mechanics as well, like the edifice, how much can it accommodate the pressure of that fluid? But then when the fluid comes in from deep below and the pressure gets too much, then it explodes. And then it's all about tracking how the fluids behave as it rises through the volcano to understand how it's going to erupt and ultimately how it's going to create hazards for surrounding populations.
1: Now, volcanology is not a science that... um we think of growing up very often. It's not like there's a volcanologist Barbie or... or, um, How, like, did you always wanna be a volcanologist? Uh, How did you get into this field?
0: Honestly, it was really unexpected. I never, as a child, I never looked at volcanoes and said, oh, I wanna study those. No, and and in fact, in high school, I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, I didn't have one year of chemistry that I needed to get into UBC's engineering program. And looking back on it, I'm actually thankful because I don't think I would have been ready for that first year of engineering, which is very intense. (laughs) But um, I just knew, all I knew in the beginning of my undergraduate was that I wanted to work on something in earth sciences. I knew that climate change was going to be a defining problem of our generation and many to come. And I wanted to be somewhere around that problem, directly or indirectly, helping to work on anything related to the climate problem. And I. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in earth science when I switched into the degree program. But then I met uh, Mark Jelinek, my advisor, during a course I took with him and eventually just asked him, can I I work in your laboratory or or do some kind of research for you over the summer? Because I want to use my brain. I'm tired of working in delis and sandwich shops, doing mindless work over the summer. It feels like a waste. So he took me in. Um, He got me doing some literature reviews just to get me familiar with uh, volcanology stuff and he, he at the time he was working on volcanology fluid mechanics and then eventually he let me be a little more independent and start running experiments and you know I didn't know much about volcanoes I obviously think they're cool when you see an eruption it's it's this larger than life experience and it's such a high energy event you know it's quite a spectacle i don't i haven't really encountered anybody who looks at a video of a volcanic eruption isn't you know wide eye and mouth open going wow this is incredible never met somebody who says oh no this is boring i don't think those people exist (laughs) so um i didn't know i was gonna go this route but once i started getting more familiar with the science um it was intimidating because it's fluid mechanics it's turbulent flow it's stuff that's very very complicated that i never anticipated i'd be working on but then when you look at the pictures and images you're just like wow this is fascinating i mean this is just incredible how big these events are and some of the events that we know of from the geologic record are you know they're linked to extinction events so this is the more i learned the more i realized wow this is really important Volcanoes have been building topography on Earth's surface shaping Earth's surface for the whole history of Earth and also on other planets and then also um, Kind of governing the chemistry of the oceans and the atmosphere over geologic time and all these factors these influences of volcanoes on Earth's surface go into how habitable is it for us and for other life and during what periods of time so the more I learned, the more I realized, OK, this is pretty cool. I think I could get used to working on this for a while. It just seems like endless opportunities to you know, explore your curiosity with this subject. Um, and then the other part, I guess, was that it allowed me to work in the lab, but also work in the field. So I knew that I wanted to work in earth science. And part of that was also because I wanted to not be behind a computer screen my whole career. I wanted to get outside, do some field work, get my hands dirty. And volcanology, as I explained, you know, what is a classic volcanologist is certainly a way to do that. So, I think the combination of those factors all attracted me to it. Um, but I didn't; I wasn't planning on being a volcanologist, right? I just really I was like a bit of a lost undergrad, just saying, look, I want to do earth science, and I haven't thought past that. And then I just got lucky that I met Mark at the right time, and he took me into his lab and, and showed me the ropes. Really.
1: always amazing the the difference um one interested teacher can make
0: yeah you know that's my advice for most young high school students and uh college students it's it's really about finding a teacher or professor that inspires you it's not always about the subject matter honestly any subject matter can be very interesting the more you get to know it like I never thought that math was that interesting. And then I got a little bit better at it. Now I think it's fascinating. So when you give something a chance and you get better at it and become an expert, then it's going to be interesting by default because you just know so much about it. Um, So I would, my advice to young people is don't stress too much about which subject you want to study. Search more for somebody who inspires you, who you think is perhaps living a great life with an awesome career and good work balance. And then figure out how they got there and see if you can work with them and soak up some of their experience.
1: That's great advice. (laughs) I'm gonna go back a little bit. Uh, In your history of the field of volcanology, one thing that really jumped out um, was that the field has really kind of taken off uh, only relatively recently uh, since the 1940s and 1950s. It feels like, um, especially in the grand scheme of uh, science, that's a relatively young field um, and there's still a lot of room for major discoveries. Uh, So have you yourself made any discoveries that you'd care to share?
0: Yeah, I I agree that it's definitely a relatively young field. Um, And I would say in my particular part of the field within volcanology, I study these ash plumes that come from explosive eruptions and That subfield of volcanology, this sort of ash plumes, eruption column modeling, uh, that took off, I want to say, about in the 80s a bit. There were some guys like Steve Sparks, Stephen Carey, among others, that started doing some mathematical modeling of, of how these ash clouds rise and spread in the atmosphere or collapse to form these deadly pyroclastic flows that you know, can take out cities like Pompeii, that that famous eruption, AD 79 of Vesuvius that took out Pompeii, that's the exact kind of eruption that I study. And actually I should just say that the field really started during at that eruption, because that's where we have the first written account by Pliny the Younger of that eruption. And he drew the first sketch, which was basically like a sort of coniferous tree was the shape of the plume that he saw. And when you look at his sketch and you compare it to say sketches that I've made of modern day plumes in my um, work, it's incredible how accurate he was. I mean, he, he he did a fantastic job describing it for, it's I think the first known written description of a Plinian eruption column is what we call it, very large eruption column. So um, yeah, I've, within this subfield of ash clouds, ash plume rise, I have been doing my own experiments and I've discovered a mechanism, this sort of solid, fluid interaction that governs whether or not these eruption columns that burst out of the vent rise to spread into the atmosphere in big umbrella eruption clouds, or if they collapse to produce these hot rock avalanches called pyroclastic density currents. Um, And that sort of binary view, just buoyant rise or dense collapse, has been the standard model for I would say 40 years now if not longer however what my work has shown is that it's that's actually not the most common fate for a lot of these big explosive plinian eruptions most of them seem to occur in this intermediate regime where a portion of the mixture rises buoyantly and spreads into ash clouds but at the same time you get a a fraction of it collapsing and I found that the collapse can be periodic which Mm. is very interesting and It's actually quite simple. I I was amazed at how simple some of the physics were. It's really just fountain physics. So if you walk around campus, you walk around a, a city where there's lots of fountains, you look at a fountain aims vertically up and it oscillates, the top of it oscillates. It doesn't just stay steady with a constant flow. You'll see it oscillate and actually you'll see like packages of high volume of water falling intermittently or periodically. So I applied that idea, the physics, it's basically the balance of the momentum going up and the weight of the water coming down and those two fighting each other to create a sort of periodic collapse of the fountain when you look at in high res in time. And I did experiments in the lab modeling these volcanic eruption columns that begin as fountains when they come out of the vent because they're more dense than the surrounding atmosphere and showed that if you just measure the source conditions, this momentum flux and buoyancy flux, buoyancy flux being basically the weight of the material, momentum flux being the upward energy of it or upward momentum, uh, when you model it, you see that they oscillate at a predicted frequency if you can measure those two properties at the source or at the vent. And you could do the same thing with volcanoes and you can predict the frequency at which they're gonna collapse. Uh, And that's really important because the collapse is what generates pyroclastic density currents and if we can predict the frequency of it we're basically able to come up with some hazard assessment and say okay if we can start to measure these events in real time with satellites or doppler radar things like that or seismometers and we can start to constrain those source conditions the conditions coming out of the vent such as the velocity and and the size of the vent then we can in real time start to predict whether or not it's going to collapse. And if it's going to collapse, how frequently is it going to collapse? And then how much energy is going to go down in those flows and how far are they going to run out? And is that going to be close to a town, right? Is Are they going to run over a town or not? So all of those factors go into the hazard forecasting. And that's really what I've been working on the most is trying to figure out, okay, how do these eruption columns collapse? What is the nitty gritty uh, high resolution in time mechanism that governs the physics of this. Uh, and so I've, what I've done is I've just ta- I've just said to the community, look, we got to look in more detail here in at a finer time scale to see what is the process going on. Is it intermittent? Is it periodic? Because it's not just continuous. And we see that in videos of eruptions. Um, and I got to say, I'm really lucky because I'm coming into the field where everybody has a smartphone, everybody has a camera. And this is basically a scientific instrument. So we have all these modern eruptions occurring like Calbuco in 2015 in Chile. There's gorgeous 4K video of it. And you can see that there's periodic PDCs coming out of the base and lower clouds and then a higher cloud. And then the top of it is oscillating. So I just got lucky. I saw that it provided me with a lot of insight that, you know, my, um, uh, the people that came before me, Stephen Carey, Stephen Sparks, these guys didn't see when they were first creating the the first models of these eruption columns. So, you know, there's, as always with some new findings, um, there's a bit of luck involved, serendipitous discovery. Uh, I didn't expect to discover this new periodic process and I call this sediment waves. It's basically like waves of sediment that fall down with the fluid in this solid fluid fountain that we're injecting into our big water tank in the, in the lab. Um, and yeah, that was, that was unexpected to see that process. But then once I saw it, I was like, okay, this can probably explain a lot of observations of eruptions in the field. Um, and in particular, explain this, this. these eruptions lay down deposits, right? I said how they build this layer cake, which is the volcanic edifice. And we can look at that those layers and extract a lot of information or infer a lot of information about how, for example, a eruption that we didn't witness Uh, behaved. So we look at the rocks, how they're organized, how far the big rocks went away from the volcano, and we can start to reconstruct what the eruption maybe looked like and how it evolved during its time, even though it happened before humans existed, for example. So I've been with my results, this finding of this sediment wave process and how exactly these eruption columns collapse, and also sometimes in an intermediate regime of collapse, This, all these physics make predictions that are actually confirmed by the deposits that we already have studied uh, in a lot of detail. So I've just submitted a 50 page paper on this. Uh, We'll see, hopefully the reviewers aren't too harsh on me and are just helpful. And hopefully it'll be published next year. And what I'm part of what I did was I said, okay, I've discovered this new collapse mechanism and it can explain like these two or three very commonly observed features in deposit stratigraphy that seem to be a part of almost every major eruption deposit. Um, But before my study was submitted, were really poorly understood. Nobody understood how those were in place. And we're coming up with some pretty unrealistic explanations, in my opinion. So that's the biggest finding of my research. And I, I call it sediment waves and it has applications to other disciplines too, um, because there's fountains in industry, uh, in nature for other phenomena. It's, there's certainly fountains in space, in the universe in other places. And so, and they can have particles in the fluid fountain as well. And so you, theoretically, you should be able to have this sediment wave periodic process occur in many other uh, natural settings and also in industry. And so I'm only beginning now to try to think about how widely applicable this discovery is.
1: Well, that's great. That, that's a lot of <laughs> research. Um, I'm gonna take it back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned uh, that that kind of binary model, which you're um, uh, kind of undoing, but um, at the, the heart of it, you've got ash that stays in the atmosphere and ash that comes uh, crashing down to earth. Um, Considering that you know Pompeii seems to be a really unique circumstance, we haven't really had a whole city be destroyed uh, for a couple of millennia now. Um, yeah. So it seems to be pretty rare. So why should we uh, be so concerned about ash going into the atmosphere or ash coming crashing back down to Earth?
0: That's a great question. Um, we call that the the well, I shouldn't say it, but it's the who cares question, really, and. <laughs> Yeah, you know why are taxpayers paying me for this research and and my colleagues, right? Why do we care how much ash goes into the atmosphere versus collapses to the ground? So I'll start with the easy one: the pyroclastic density currents, which is when these things, when these eruption columns collapse. Um, yes, Pompeii. It's been a while, but it, just in the past five years, there's been several collapsing eruption columns that produce pyroclastic density currents that killed tens of people. Um, there was one in Japan. I think it was Mount Unzun. There's even a video of tourists that were hiking on the volcano. And then the Pyroclastic Density Current came down. And luckily, I don't think they died, but other people higher up died. And um, it was also Fuego in Guatemala, which was, I think, like two or three years ago. And uh, 40 or more people died, in part because they didn't understand the hazards. And uh, there were people on bridges just filming this flow coming at them. And they didn't understand they should get out of the way uh, which is unfortunate. Um, but basically every year there's the potential for people to die from these pyroclastic density currents. Cause there's lots of populations that live around volcanoes. Volcanoes have very rich soils because of the ash that adds a lot of, uh, limiting nutrients to the soils. So people, even though they're so dangerous, people are going to live there because they're very rich and there's a lot of economic benefits to living around a volcano. Um, Now, we haven't had, like you said, a major city be taken out by a pyroclastic density current since Pompeii, but we have many cities that are on the flanks of volcanoes, including uh, Pompeii today and Naples around Vesuvius, which we know has done this in the past. There's millions of people living there within the danger zone. and. Uh, some people think there's no hope to come up with a plan to save all of them if it occurs again and that we just have to accept that many people are going to die. But, you know, that's kind of the risk you take. For example, living in Vancouver on a major earthquake zone, right? You kind of have to accept that risk. So yes, we haven't had a major city get killed by a volcano recently, but um, there's been mass extinction events There's also been the eruption of Santorini in the Bronze Age that took out the whole Minoan civilization on Crete and and Santorini, I think. Um, And there's been many more in Earth's history that we're aware of linked to big explosive eruptions uh, causing die-offs, at least on a regional scale, sometimes even a global scale. So it's a low frequency, low probability event, but very high risk. And we also have Arequipa in Peru, which I've visited that has this volcano Mount Misty just above it. And if that were to erupt and create a pyroclastic density current, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people in its path. And I, I actually summited that volcano two years ago. And I remember looking down on the city and then looking into the smoldering crater, which could have erupted when I was there, right? That was, <laughs> it's probably not a smart idea. But then I looked down at the city and I said, wow, I mean, these people, they wouldn't have, much time to evacuate and it's a tragedy just waiting to happen just like naples in italy um and even in you know cascadia here we have mount meager which is near pemberton if that were to erupt it could melt a glacier and create these lahars that would flow down the lillooet river and potentially take out a lot of people in pemberton if they don't have advanced enough warning uh, mount <laughs> garibaldi is a volcano near squamish and if that were to erupt which there's no indication that it will but we just don't know but if that were to erupt squamish is right there and it's right in the path of many uh, lahars or uh, pyroclastic density currents. And I should say lahars are mudslides, uh, just so you know, um, volcanically induced mudslides. So that's a long winded answer to why we should care about the collapse. Uh, but there's even more reasons to care about the buoyant rise and spread in the atmosphere. Okay. Because actually volcanoes modify our climate significantly. Um, they input a lot of gases such as CO2, water vapor, and sulfate into the atmosphere. CO2, we know, uh, is a greenhouse gas, and anthropogenic CO2 is causing climate change right now. Before that anthropogenically produced or uh, created climate change began to unfold, though volcanoes were one of the primary natural events that were modulating the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere and a major source of CO2 over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and the sulfate aerosol, the sulfate gases are, e- in some ways, even more important, especially on decadal timescales, so tens to hundreds of years, which is important for climate change right over the next century. Uh, my colleague, Tomah Aubry, who worked was a PhD student here at UBC with Mark Jelinek as well. He did a bunch of work in his PhD to show that volcanoes can actually influence the earth's surface temperature because when a volcano erupts explosively and it in the eruption column reaches the tropopause, the boundary between the lower troposphere where most of earth's weather occurs and the stratosphere, which is where airplanes like to fly because there's no weather there and you can fly a lot faster. It injects when volcanic plumes reach the stratosphere, they and input a lot of sulfur, uh, they uh, sulfate specifically. They that can be converted quickly into sulfur sulfate aerosols that reflect sunlight, mm-hmm. and it can stay there for a year or more at a time. So after the eruption in 1991 of Pinatubo in the Philippines, because it was in the tropics, it input all this these sulfate aerosols. Into the stratosphere at a tropical latitude where the sun's intensity is most intense and reflected so much sunlight that the Earth's surface temperature cooled by half a degree over the next year. And so, and that was a relatively small eruption, you could say, compared to some much larger ones like Yellowstone or Toba uh, that have occurred in Earth's history that we're aware of. So, these eruptions can modulate Earth's climate. You know, within our you know lifetime, Uh, another eruption like Pinatubo could easily occur within our lifetime, cool the Earth's surface by half a degree for a year. Uh, There's also small eruptions that occur every day, and we're just learning, beginning to learn how much they affect Earth's climate. And it seems to be that many of these smaller eruptions over the 2000s may have explained this so-called global warming hiatus that occurred. I think it was the 90s or the 2000s. There was a sort of a a a. how should I put this, Um, less of a global warming effect measured than was anticipated due to anthropogenic CO2. And some people have done some studies on all the eruptions that occurred during that time period and said, okay, well, there was enough sulfate aerosols input by these eruptions that maybe could explain why global warming seemed to have taken a break during that decade. Um, And then I haven't even really talked about these super ultra Plinian eruptions. They're called like Yellowstone and Toba in 73,000 years ago. Uh, The Toba one's interesting because it's linked to a mass extinction of Southeast Asia at the time. There were some human populations in India and there was lots of ash that fell right where there's a disappearance of fossils and whatnot and artifacts from those civilizations in the rock layers. And so a lot of people were trying to argue that that massive Toba eruption uh, potentially cooled the Earth's surface enough to create a mass die-off, at least in that region, perhaps all around the world. And that would have been in part because of the big input of sulfur into the stratosphere, but also with an eruption that big, there's also so much ash that the ash can block out the sun for weeks or months at a time, depending on how fast it stays, how long it stays there. So that's a whole lot that I just told you. Um, but Those are some very, I would say, very, very important reasons to really get a better grasp and understanding of how these eruptions uh, occur, how frequently they occur, how large they are when they occur, whether or not they get to the stratosphere, whether or not they collapse, and then when they collapse, how much mass collapses and how much mass spreads in the atmosphere. All those factors are really important for understanding the hazards for humans and other biology on Earth.
1: It's really interesting. It's amazing how... um... You know, depending on whether the ash cloud collapses or not, it can have a really intense local impact or a global impact. And in terms of climate, it can either raise the climate or lower the climate. Uh, So, yeah, just a spin of the wheel.
0: For the climate thing, it's it's you're right. It can cool the climate on short, like year to 10 year time scales. But on longer time scales, that same eruption like Pinatubo that cooled the climate on longer time scales it also put in a bunch of co2 so on longer time scales it actually could help with warming the planet right so it's interesting because a single eruption can have big local effects initially and then global cooling effects initially but then global warming effects on longer time scales so it's yeah it's it's <laughs> So it's very and that's that's part of why these problems are difficult, because you have, you know, you have ash particles the size of one micron, you can't even see it on your finger, all the way up to particles that are big volcanic bombs being injected into the atmosphere. So modeling that is very difficult, because you have to model the small scale all the way up to the large scale. And then you have to model stuff that happens on milliseconds or nanoseconds. All the way up to things that happen on you know hundreds to thousands of years to grasp all the effects on our surface and that's what makes us these problems so difficult is that there's so many processes happening on so many different spatial and temporal scales that need to be captured or at least parameterized in these models to fully understand the effects for humans and and for Earth's climate history <laughs>
1: I'm glad you mentioned um, volcanic bombs. Um, (laughs) You have a great volcanic bomb story. Uh, One thing that I've heard from all of our our scientists is that when they go into the field, uh, the craziest things happen. So uh, do you wanna share uh, any field stories and please do share the volcanic bomb story. It's one of my favorites. I tell the kids all the time.
0: yeah so i think if i if i know the story you're talking about my my co-supervisor franck donadieu at uh, university clermont auvergne in france he told me this story where he was at mount etna which is a very active what we call laboratory volcano in italy because it's very well instrumented and erupts regularly so we can study it a lot so he was there uh on the flank of the volcano while it was erupting and they were trying to collect data collect rocks and ash samples and he was on the radio and he said, okay, we're going to move a bit closer to try to get some samples. And as he was saying that a big volcanic bomb fell right between his legs, like landed right between his legs. And he's on the, he's on the radio and he goes, uh, never mind. We're actually going to run away now <laughs> because I mean, if that volcanic bomb had landed, you know, two feet higher, it would have severed his body in half. I mean, it, these things go down at such high velocity and such high temperature, and they're, and they're dense, they're big rocks, that it can absolutely kill you if it hits you in the wrong spot. Um, so uh, apparently what had happened was that the eruption was going on. It didn't seem, it seemed consistent or steady in its energy. But then as he was on the phone, all of a sudden there was a big increase in intensity and started lobbing volcanic bombs a lot farther away. So, um, yeah, so he, he, he got really lucky. And I'm very thankful because I need him as a supervisor, but he's also a great human being deserves to live. Um, but yeah, that's that's just an intrinsic sort of risk when you're a volcanologist and you go to observe these eruptions in person. There's uh, there's always this kind of plan or or balance of safety and the yearning for getting close enough to get good samples. Right? You want to get close because there's certain samples you need to get close that you can't get further away to help constrain your modeling. But then if you get too close, you might die, and then you don't get to do any modeling. So what good are you to society, you know? So, um, But it's, yeah, and it's funny because I went to a field school where I talked to some people way, way more experienced with this field work when there's bombs falling, and they they actually train us. They say, look, this is what you do when bombs start falling around you. You have to, you don't just turn and book it. You're supposed to back up and keep an eye up above you looking up to dodge the bombs as they come down. And I asked them, I was like, well, you could trip. You're not looking where you're backing up and it's really rubble pile everywhere. You could trip. And then what happened? And they said, you just got to do your best. (laughs) Kind of a crazy situation to find yourself. So I should just say that I haven't been in that situation yet. Thank God. Um, I've seen an explosive eruption from about five kilometers away, but that wasn't nearly close enough to get hit by any big volcanic bombs. And most of those bombs fall pretty close to the volcano within a a kilometer or a couple kilometers for a large one. Um, But I have had ash. I mean, I have other field stories too, if you want me to get into them. That's just the volcanic bomb one
1: go ahead
0: yeah okay so (laughs) let's see so um a lot of the volcanology work that goes on today can happen in in developing countries that don't have as good infrastructure or access or instruments as say italy does or or the u.s does or canada um but they have volcanoes that are erupting all the time and very consistently and that's great because they're predictable which usually volcanoes aren't very predictable and when you're planning a science campaign you know a year or two in advance you want some guarantee that the volcano is still going to be erupting when you get there and that's always the tough thing when you plan a volcanology expedition you're like well sh- if it's not erupting when we get there then this is all for nothing. Um, so. There's a lot of volcanoes that are erupting regularly in places like Peru. There's a volcano called Sabancaya, a volcano that's been erupting for about four years now consistently. Um, and we went there in 2018 and it was a heck of an experience. And I remember it's up at elevation. It's in the Andes mountains. So our base camp about five kilometers away from the volcano uh, was at 5,000 meters elevation. and I don't know if, if you haven't been to five thousand meters elevation for more than like an hour or two at a time, you start as soon as you start to walk uphill. Within two or three steps, you're gasping for air. I mean, I'm I'm a sea level creature, right? Like I play in the mountains here a lot, two thousand meters elevation, but five thousand meters is a whole different atmosphere. I mean, it's you any anything you you take everything for granted down at sea level you you try to lift your backpack on your shoulder and you're like oh my just feels like it's twice the weight it actually is so we didn't move around much the first week didn't really stray farther than like 10 meters from our tents (laughs) because it's just too tiring so we set up and i have an old eye injury i cut my the cornea on my eye uh by accident several years ago and it takes a while to heal because the blood doesn't really get there that well so it doesn't heal that easily and so we're at this high elevation where the atmosphere is very very dry very low density air um, and there's ash and dust everywhere and there's actually these little mini tornadoes called dust devils but they're really ash devils they're Resuspending all the ash from all the previous eruptions before we got there. And then when you get hit by one of these, it's like ash everywhere and it's crazy. And then it just passes after two seconds and you're just covered in ash everywhere. And but after about three or four days of being up there in this very dry climate with all this ash, my eye got very aggravated and I actually couldn't really open it and, and see out of it. And so I was effectively half blind and at the same time, I had eaten some street food or something in Arequipa, the city, the closest city to where we were at. And being the Westerner that I am, my, my body's biome is not used to the, to the bacteria down there in their food. And so I got a, a stomach bug, which seems to be a recurring theme for me whenever I go to a developing country to do fieldwork. It also happened to me in Mexico. And it always hits me when I'm at high elevation on the volcano. I wish it would just hit me in the hotel room so I could just stay there and recover, but it always hits me at the worst time, like right when we get up there. So that was happening, this horrible stomach bug. I felt super sick, had a fever, and I I would just come out of my tent every time it erupted, take a video, and then go back and be miserable. And then on like the third, fourth day, I was also blind. So I was like coming out, trying to focus my camera, trying to talk to everybody, learn this new uh, Doppler radar instrument, and then but only half blind and trying to write notes and everything and then you know all kinds of other things with the stomach bug so I was just absolutely miserable to the point where I I was almost going to request that evacuation and maybe even fly back to Vancouver it got that bad right I don't want to lose my eyesight over this Mm -hmm. Um, but luckily we went down to lower elevation and I was able to recover uh, you know more dense atmosphere, more oxygen down there, helped my body recover from the stomach bug. And then uh, my eye recovered as well, because there's a, a higher humidity down there, a little more moisture in the air. And then we went up for a second week. And then I was acclimatized to the to the elevation. I was able to hike around like I do at sea level. My eye was fine. I also wore more protective gear. I learned my lesson. <laughs> um, and that, the second week went much better. But The ash got into all my clothes, my zippers, my tent, and it ruined it. My tent got ripped because the ash is actually, you know, very small micron-sized particles of basically broken glass. We call it volcanic glass. If you've heard of like obsidian, that's basically volcanic glass. When you freeze the magma super fast, you quench it. You don't give time for the crystals to organize. And so it just becomes this disorganized crystal glass structure, and it's very sharp. So all these microparticles of ash flying around you are actually abrasive. And when they get in your zippers and your gear, they tear the fabrics, they tear the zippers, and they cause a lot of havoc for equipment too, like electronics and whatnot. So it's not an easy environment to to work in, that's for sure. I
1: have to admit, I've used your model of um, the ash being basically microscopic broken glass um, quite a few times, and it's very popular.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's it just makes it more relatable, right? And that's essentially what it is. If you look at it under a microscope, when you break glass, um, it actually looks very similar when you look at this ash under a microscope, the way the sharp edges form and whatnot. The difference is that the volcanic ash is actually made up of a bunch of concavities meeting up because those concavities were where the bubbles were Mm -hmm. that actually ripped the magma apart as it was freezing. So it's interesting, when you look at a micron-sized ash under a microscope, you can see what, you can basically get a sense of what the size of the bubbles were when the whole, ma- when the magma was ripped apart.
1: Interesting. It's kind of like a sponge cake.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Just not as, not as soft.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> I remember you telling me that um, you get some uh, funding from a really interesting uh, industry group Uh, which we wouldn't expect to fund uh, volcanic research. Um, Yeah, you were saying you get a lot of funding from like airline groups. Yeah,
0: Yeah. so um, one hazard I didn't mention earlier, I talked about when the ash spreads in the atmosphere that it can, you know, affect the climate. Uh, I should have mentioned that more immediate hazards in the short term is affecting airplanes. So if you think about this micron-sized ash, and it's very sharp, and there's lots of it in these clouds, if you fly a plane through one of these clouds and that gets into the engine, it's actually going to damage the turbines and the engines, the blades of the turbines. And it can actually cause engines to fail midair. And you don't want to be in an airplane when an engine fails. Luckily, they have two, mostly for redundancy for that reason. But if both of them fail, then you're just gliding and then you have to make an emergency landing. And that actually happened. Um, there was the... It was the 1991 eruption of Mount Redoubt in Alaska and a plane actually flew through the ash cloud and had to make an emergency landing in Anchorage. Uh, Luckily everybody survived, but both engines failed. And I think it glided in to a landing or at least one engine failed. So that was one of the first instances where we, where the community started to appreciate how dangerous these volcanic eruptions are for airplanes. And in today's world, if you were to show a map of the Earth showing all the air flights every day, I mean, there's thousands, um, maybe not during the pandemic, but certainly before the pandemic, a bunch of these these airplane routes go over active volcanoes that are erupting every day. And and a lot of these volcanoes, for example, the Aleutians and Kamchatka, which is all part of the uh, Ring of Fire, the Pacific Rim around the Pacific Ocean, So the Aleutians coming out from Alaska, going to Kamchatka, Russia, and then down in Japan, those are some of the most active volcanoes in the world. And also there's a ton of trans-Pacific airline flights that go over those volcanoes. So the problem, though, for monitoring them, you know, one of these volcanoes erupts, we want to let the planes know immediately. And we have to say, okay, the ash is spreading over this region. You planes should stay away from that region because it's all and then it's going to spread and that region is going to get larger. But... These volcanoes are in like the Bering Sea and whatnot where there's nobody, absolutely nobody. I mean, they're hundreds of kilometers from any, the nearest town. So how do we all, how do we monitor them? Well, we use the sound. They make a big explosion when they erupt and there's acoustic sensors in like Fairbanks and, and Anchorage that detect this and they can pinpoint the, they can triangulate just like we do with earthquakes, where the eruption occurred and then try to figure out how big is the eruption but generally we just use like satellite imagery or just basically the explosion sound pressure wave traveling across the earth to figure out when these remote volcanoes erupt and then we have to fly somebody out there or or train a satellite on it to take pictures to be like okay how big is the ash cloud how high is it going what height is it spreading before we can you know inform the hazard assessment for uh the aviation centers. so there's there's places called VACs, um, Volcanic Ash and Aviation uh, Control or something like that. But basically what they're doing is they've broken the Earth's atmosphere into different regions and each VAC, there's one in the UK, uh, there's one in Australia, there's one in North America, there's one in South America, and they're monitoring these eruptions in their region and then they ha- they're in charge of informing the hazard assessment for all the airplanes that go in that region. And then they have to communicate because airplanes will cross in between regions, right? So these guys have to communicate really well uh, and in real time. And um, yeah, so the, the, and one of the major challenges of this monitoring for, for airplanes is that you can have a concentration that I think is as low as like 0.3 milligrams per cubic meter of ash that that's the threshold that's just enough to break an engine from some experiments they've done uh, in the past couple of decades, which is not much. It's it's so so low of a concentration that if you were a pilot in the atmosphere looking out the window, you actually wouldn't be able to see it. And that's probably the biggest challenge for airplanes is that the hazard can still be there even if you don't see it right? And they've tried to make these instruments that stick off of airplanes that capture air as the airplane's flying to try to detect this. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. They typically only work for concentrations, I think, that are high enough that then you can see it. So it's not that useful. Um, But the, the main impetus for all the funding we got, what you originally were talking about, was after the 2010 eruption of I don't know if I pronounce it right. We call it (laughs) Aya, that uh, famous volcano in Iceland that erupted for, I think about three months, uh, just spewing ash into the atmosphere above Iceland. And then it drifted over uh, Western and Central Europe. And obviously there's tons of flights there. I mean, loads and loads of flights and it disrupted airplane travel for a very long time. A lot of people couldn't get home after the holidays. People were stuck in airports for weeks at a time. Uh, and it cost the airline industry billions of dollars. So after that happened, because the Readout eruption was in 1991, that's when we first realized, okay, this is a pretty big problem for airplanes. But we didn't really appreciate how extensive a crisis could be for the aviation industry because the Readout eruption was pretty remote. There weren't that many flights at that time. Fast forward 20 years and there's flights everywhere all the time. And then you get a even a similar size eruption, but for a longer period of time, duration. And now you're ca- now you disrupting, you know, a whole region of the earth, a whole continent. And so after that happened, the airline industry, you know, gave us, not us, but a lot of my colleagues in the community, you know, millions of dollars essentially to do some research. Okay, what is the minimum ash concentration? That number I gave earlier, 0.3, uh, I think it actually might be 0.3. Yeah, 0.3 grams per cubic meter. That came from that research after that eruption. Um, And there's more going on. Uh, There's a lot of money being poured into modeling. Actually, what I do, which is modeling the ash column rise and trying to figure out the physics and to determine what height it spreads at. Uh, And then that feeds into these models called volcanic ash and transport. uh, Volcanic ash transport and dispersal models. They're called VATDMs. And they model, they're coupled with big climate models, the same climate models we use to model climate change effects. And you just throw in a bunch of ash into the atmosphere at a certain height, and then you run the climate model and you see how it spreads. And then that's how you create a region for airplanes to stay away from. It's not like there's a lot of uncertainties, very complicated to do this. And in some ways they're very nascent, you know, they've really only received a lot of money to advance them in the past 10 years. And there's a lot of gaps, knowledge gaps we got to fill with them. And I'm, I'm tackling one part of that problem, which is where does ash spread? At what height? Right. And that's the input parameter for those models. And it turns out that ash can spread at multiple heights and these models don't really capture that right now. So we're trying to figure out how we can make that easy for them to capture and make them more accurate. Um, but yeah, that's a, you know, and moving forward, airline, I'm assuming airplane traffic is going to get back to normal at some point, but uh and when it does and even now there's still air air flights every day uh, this is this is a major hazard for for airlines so it's it's really important that we characterize these hazards right when they happen and then monitor them accurately and forecast the danger accurately after
1: well it just feels so relevant to today where something so tiny and microscopic that we can't actually see it with our human eye has grounded the entire planet or at least large swaths of it um
0: <laughs> that's you know and when you study fluid mechanics and like geological fluid mechanics which is really what i study it, you really the more we learn the more we learn that microphysical phenomena happening on the micron scale have huge effects for the global scale of the earth and it's but it's what makes those problems so challenging you
1: know now, you're clearly passionate about your field. Um, do you have a favorite aspect of your work? Yeah,
0: I, I love the lab work. I love being in the lab because in some ways, it's almost like I get to play God, and I have my little toy set, and I get to tune the parameters and make cool videos. And I also just love watching the experiments. I think fluid dynamics is incredible. I mean, there's so many videos of such cool turbulent flows and laminar flows on the internet. and You know, fluid dynamics, the fluid, the flow of fluids is what governs the transport of mass and momentum and heat and energy um, that governs why Earth is habitable, you know, overturning the atmosphere, the oceans, brings nutrients to places, brings rain from the brings water from the oceans to the land. You know, that's all fluid dynamics. So I love doing fluid dynamics experiments. I get my hands wet, I get dirty. Um, I get to, you know, stand up and move around. I'm not just stuck in an office chair. I get to use very high, highly sensitive um, instruments and cameras uh, that cost thousands of dollars. that I'm terrified of breaking, but (laughs) fortunate enough to still get to play with them. Um, And then I get to go in the field. You know, every other year I generally try to get into the field and get to see the natural phenomenon on studying, which is not all scientists can say that they can actually see with the naked eye this, the phenomenon that they're studying. And it's 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 one of the things I like a lot about studying earth processes on Earth's surface. And then the people you meet, like the people I met in Mexico, the culture, same in Peru. I love it. The, I mean, I love Mexicans, I love Peruvians, I love their culture, the food is incredible. The the, the cocktails in Peru were so cheap and delicious, <laughs> and I only drank them at night off the job. <laughs> um, and then working with the scientists there who don't have as much funding or resources as we do, but still are expected to sort of, you know, provide the same services that we do to our uh, communities. It's impressive to see how clever and resourceful they are with more limited resources. Um, And then you just when you're in the field with people, you just make bonds that you you don't make anywhere else because you go through stuff like I explained those stories on the volcanoes where crazy stuff happens. I mean, another story we were in Peru, we couldn't find we couldn't find uh, white fluid for these mountaineering stoves that we want to use to cook our food. So Mark and Colin, who's a Ph.D. student that came with us in our group to Peru is working with me on the same stuff they had gone ahead to camp before us and we get there a day after them and they're just covered in black soot. And I go, what, are you guys been mining for coal? You're not supposed to be doing that here. What's going on? And they said, we had to cook with diesel. So they, they were, they were cooking with diesel fuel. And luckily it was able to work. So they were able to eat, but they just, they got diesel everywhere. It's a super dirty fuel. Their their faces, their gear, their sleeping bags were covered in diesel soot, and it just looked terrible. Um, but that was another challenge of working, you know, in a developing country. You just take for granted all the products we have here in, in more developed countries So, but that was fun. That was an adventure, you know, that we talk about and laugh about that all the time. We had to make fires with diesel later in that trip to stay warm because it got really, really cold one night. Um, So the field work is super fun. The lab work is super fun. Uh, Conferences are really fun. You meet a lot of like-minded people and you get to really nerd out. And you realize, whoa, these are my people. Like when I, I have friends here who aren't in science and I talk to them about this stuff and they sometimes their eyes glaze over, right? Because they just don't know what I'm talking about or don't care. So I don't get a chance to nerd out excitedly about my research that much here. But then you go to a conference and you're surrounded by all like-minded nerds. And it's just, you go, I mean... I've been up till like two, three in the morning drinking scotch with a colleague from Italy talking about a really difficult, turbulent, multi-phase problem. I mean, and we, we got a lot of ideas out on napkins, you know, that whole classic story of scientists at the pub deriving equations on the back of a napkin. We, we did that. And it was super cool to be doing that, that kind of stereotypical scientist thing. Um, but then, and then we stay in touch after, and when you know when we're sober, we make sure first of all that it wasn't all crazy, that it made sense, and then we move it ahead more professionally, right? Uh, and start sharing and build some really awesome connections through these conferences. So, yeah. And then the other part I love, which you know, is that I I love teaching. I love talking about my research clearly. I'm giving you these long-winded answers. Um, I can talk about this stuff for days, and I love teaching students about this stuff. I love teaching students about climate change. Doesn't matter what level they're at. It can be kids in kindergarten, all the way up to adults and in between. Um, it's great. It's great to see people interested. Even if people aren't interested, I like the challenge of trying to get them interested, try to get them to care. Um, and I think I, I try to think that I have good ways of coming up with metaphors that are to take this complicated, you know, turbulent flow with particles And find a way to explain it that's more relevant to some everyday experience that you have. For example, like fountains, everybody has seen a fountain. And when I explain volcanic eruption columns in the context of just a fountain oscillating up and down, it makes sense. Like, because you can visualize it. If you can visualize it, it's gonna be more intuitive for you. So I really like the challenge of teaching and and all the social aspects that come with that. So it's rewarding work. Um, and I hope at one point, I hope I can also help maybe inform government policy. That'd be nice to really feel like I'm, I'm helping making, to make this world a better place, keep people safe from these hazards and, and maybe help governments make better decisions with the information that we try to provide them with.
1: And yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I do have to say that uh, you were the first person I saw deliver a program at the PME. Um, you delivered the volcano workshop, and I remember um, thinking that it was really uh, advanced science, but the class was really into it, and they all left. They all had amazing questions afterward. Um, and yet it was delivered at such a high level that uh, unless you really knew what you were doing, uh, it easily could have uh, fallen through the cracks,, uh, but you knocked it out of the park and then you did it again, like, The next day. And every time you've delivered your workshop, um, the kids really enjoyed it and and appreciated it.
0: Oh, thank you. I mean, I I shouldn't take too much credit because volcanoes really sell themselves. Again, like I've never met a young student, a young kid who doesn't think that volcanoes are some of the coolest things on earth or any other planet for that matter. So, you know, you just start a lecture on volcanology with some of these more recent videos we have For example, the Calbuco eruption that just shows this plume going tens of kilometers in the atmosphere. Big explosions is the energy of nuclear bombs going off at the vent every second. Um, Pyroclastic flows destroying everything in their path. I mean, it's just like a biblical event. Who, Who would not be impressed, you know? So you just you lead with that and then you've got people's attention. So it's pretty easy once you do that.
1: Now you mentioned uh, you try to get out into the field at least once a year. Um, I know that with the COVID restrictions, um, a lot of those plans have been uh, altered or even canceled. Uh, How have you been able to do your work during COVID or or have you been impacted by COVID?
0: Yeah, um, I gotta say I've been pretty fortunate that it hasn't impacted me as much as other colleagues of mine at UBC. Um, I mean, for one thing in Canada, especially BC, I think Bonnie Henry, Henry Dix, they've done a great job of dealing with this pandemic and mitigating the worst of it. So yeah, we all had to work from home. We had to teach online, which was a bit of a transition. Uh, But luckily I had a lot of writing I had to do when this hit and a lot of work that's done on the computer. And I was able to work remotely. I was already working remotely for half the week anyway. And I think I'm just fortunate that, that I didn't have any field trips planned or any, uh, any conferences that I really had to go to that would have been disrupted. I got lucky. So I was able to spend most of this pandemic thus far writing, uh, which was some work I was going to do anyway. The only thing is that it has impacted my access to the lab. I have planned to already have some experiments up and running by now, and that's been postponed. Um, it's not a huge deal because I've been able to fill that time with other work, like, like writing that I need to get to. So I think, you know, luckily I've hedged my PhD work in that I've made sure that there's, you know, some lab work, some field work, some, some writing and and modeling work. And when you do that, it's nice because if there is some unexpected disruption to your work, hopefully there's some other project that's been on the back burner that you can then take to the front burner and be like okay well i'm just gonna work on this for now and postpone the other thing so you know I've, i part of my phd plan was to hedge bets a little bit and yeah it's delayed the experiments but i'm actually this week i'm gonna start going back in the lab i've got access now and i'll start running experiments again and there's some added precautions a little more delays with safety and whatnot um all for good reason of course uh but yeah it's also you know i wasn't able to go visit university of oregon and work with some colleagues there so I've had to do most of this collaborative work over Zoom. And it it works still, but it's not the same as being in the room with somebody with a whiteboard or with a pen and paper and really bouncing ideas off each other right there in person. It's, you don't get the same kind of efficiency and energy over Zoom as or over uh, video as you would in person. So and I'm not the only one. It's definitely disrupted other colleagues in my field. Um, but I would say that, you know, with the advent of computer technology and video capa- video chatting capabilities, and then online courses and whatnot, I mean, we're lucky to have all that because it's, it's really mitigated how bad this could have been if we didn't have all these uh, resources to do things remotely.
1: Excellent. Well, I'm glad uh, it hasn't been too traumatic uh, on a professional level for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Now, my final question, um, the field of earth, ocean and atmospheric sciences is pretty big. It's pretty um, diverse in many ways. And I've f- found that volcanologists in particular are a really uh, warm and welcoming bunch and, and um, very friendly. But uh, sometimes there's stuff that uh, goes underneath the radar. And so maybe I'm not perceiving it. So do you feel like there's been any way in which you've uh, had to struggle unfairly in the field of earth, ocean and At- atmospheric sciences? or? in which you think other people have maybe had to struggle unfairly?
0: That's a good question. Um, I mean, one thing, you know, one thing I've noticed, I haven't had a hard time, I don't think. I think I've been super lucky just with meeting my advisor and just how my work's unfolded. I think there's been a huge dose of luck involved in that. I mean, maybe I chose the right field at the right time and chose the right problem to work on and that was all in my control. But I I do think that I've been quite lucky. Things have felt pretty smooth. It hasn't been easy, it's been super hard. I wasn't good at math or physics for that much when I first entered and had to, you know, really change my life to study hard and and catch up on these things. Um, But that's for any PhD student really, yeah, it's a challenge, that's the nature of a PhD. It's gonna push you to the brink of your capacity. to push you to do cutting edge research. But I've colleagues that I've seen at workshops and conferences that come from, like I mentioned, more developing countries that don't have as much government funding for volcanic monitoring or for field work or for modeling work or lab work, don't have access to a lab just because, you know, basically they were born in that country and that's what they were born into. Um, Right. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose the parents I was born to who were lucky enough to value education and help me pay tuition, you know, very lucky in that sense. Whereas I have colleagues that struggle to make it to conferences, to network and to get their next job and, and to learn the cutting edge research that's being presented at conferences, bring it back to their home country to inform their volcano hazard assessment uh, projects, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that there, there's a big push to try to make these conferences and workshops more inclusive to try to subsidize the travel for people from developing countries so and and that's been happening in my field and I, i'm really happy to see that i think there's always more we can do um and it is easy for us to kind of i don't know you just get closed into our academic bubbles and not realize that we really need to bring in more people from like i don't know the philippines or indonesia where there's tons of active volcanoes all the time but they don't have the resources that we have right um and then there's weird things where i will work with people from developing countries but i don't know how much of the data to share because there's reports of people sort of stealing ideas and um you know the, when you go collect data you spend all this money you do all this prep if you share the data and then that person goes and just shows it or publishes it without telling you, it really screws you over. Um, so you, it, there's a lot of politics to navigate with that. I had to sort of navigate that with the Peruvian project, and I really want to give back. I want to help them, you know, assess their hazards and share data. But I also, you know, have my own career to think about. And if they show some data at a conference without my knowledge or consent or publish it before me that really throws a monkey wrench in my career plans. Um, so it's it's tough to kind of navigate that. Uh, and I think, I think, I hope my, I don't know, it's a lot of these things are just more, I think fundamental to science, not necessarily earth ocean atmospheric research. It's just that science has limited funding for how many people wanna work in science. So it's highly competitive and, and ultra competitive these days. Whereas my dad's a professor of psychology, back in his day in the 60s and 70s, there was faculty positions for all PhDs pretty much. Whereas now I think you got like a 1% chance of landing a 10 year track job if you graduate with a PhD, which is abysmal. uh, And obviously is gonna lead to a lot of competitive uh, jockeying. So I guess within, within the field though of earth sciences, I do know that like there's been people that do field work in remote areas, for example, remote areas and rural places in the U S that experience racism. I've experienced racism in rural places in the U S not during work, but just during travels. Uh, that's a big challenge. I'm, I'm half white and and half Sri Lankan ethnic eth- eth- ethnically. And, but I don't, I, I think I appear white to people. So I've never really experienced much racism during work or anything. People don't know how to place me, so I don't feel it, Uh, I guess, because they don't know what race to place me in. It makes it hard to be racist towards me. (laughs) At least that's what I'm assuming. But I have colleagues that have dealt with it for sure. Um, Travel can be difficult. I have a colleague who couldn't travel to the U.S. because of Trump's ban against travel for Iranians. And he wasn't able to come to this conference. And that puts him at a huge disadvantage because that's a huge opportunity to present his work and network. And that's very unfair. And I thought I was really upset about it personally. And um, and he didn't deserve it at all. He's done nothing to deserve that, right? And but just because of where he's from, he missed out on that opportunity. So it definitely happens with Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric Sciences, especially because there's always a fieldwork component. And depending where you're working in the field, you might encounter people that you know are maybe not as tolerant as as in these liberal city bubbles that we tend to house our universities in uh, so i'd say for yeah earth science when you're doing field work that's where things can get tricky um, depending where you're doing your field work but there's certainly also like you know there, there's not enough underrepresented groups in earth sciences i mean look at our department's faculty it's pretty much all white people um, and it's like that across science, and it's getting better. A lot of people, organizations like the American Geophysical Union is making a hard push to be more inclusive, give more opportunities to underrepresented groups. Um, in fact, I just, you know, did an application with the National uh, Science Engineering Research Council of Canada to get funding for my next gig, a postdoc, and they have a very explicit instructions now for to consider diversity, and inclusivity in your research proposals. So, you know, how are you gonna disseminate your work to underrepresented groups and include them, make sure they get access to your findings in, in developing countries. And when you say hire undergraduate students to help you in the lab, are you gonna give preference to underrepresented groups, right, are you gonna encourage them to go into science, to, into STEM fields? So I think there's good signs. It's, it's, you know, it would have been better if it happened earlier, but at least there's a there's a push now happening in Canada, uh, also in the U.S. I know the U.S. is super partisan, but I, I know on the liberal side, like tons, the majority of scientists recognize this problem in the U.S. and are want to do something to address it. Um, yeah, so that's that's my long
1: win. Well, I'm glad you've never experienced it yourself. Um, th- that would be re- really unfortunate, uh, but I'm also really glad that you recognize that it's something that other people uh struggle with at times too.
0: Um yeah, and I'll just say that it's 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 weird being a multiracial sort of person, at eth- like my ethnicity. I, I never really knew what race I belonged to. I never really felt like I belonged to one race or another. I was born in the US. I feel like an American. I've been in Canada for 10, 12 years now. So now I feel actually more like a Canadian. Um but I do recognize that, you know, if there's a young Sri Lankan kid out there, a young white kid, a young multiracial, biracial kid out there who feels intimidated by science, you know, maybe I should maybe own my ethnicity a bit more to be like, look, if I can do it, you can do it too. Like, don't be intimidated. There's t- Yeah, most of the pro- old senior professors in my field are old white guys. It's true. Um And some of them have, you know, a couple of them have what I would say a very, to put it nicely, an old school view of life and inclusivity, or don't even think of inclusivity. And it's a problem, but, you know, those traditions in the field will die with them. They say science advances one generation at a time. As brutal as that sounds, it's also true. You know, for these underrepresented groups, yeah, the old guard in a lot of these disciplines is a bunch of old white guys. It's true from, you know, Colonizing European countries, but they're they're going to fade out a bit as more of us, sort of multiracial people, come in. Uh, we're going to start to replace some of them, and then it's going to be a more diverse field. And then the results will be have less of this sort of Western focus and context, and be more applicable to everybody on Earth, right? Which is part of this big inclusivity and di- diversity drive in research uh, planning.
1: Well, with what you've said about volcanology, it sounds like the generation or generational turnover could be a bit faster than in other fields.
0: Yeah, I, I do want to say that I I love my community. Like I think it's the these issues are a lot worse in many other disciplines and communities. Mm-hmm. Like when I went to the the conferences for our community. It was incredible. I mean, there were people from South America, from underrepresented groups, mingling with all the old dogs and um, from first world countries. And I think in my field, there's so many eruption deposits. And you can like, as soon as you find an eruption deposit and characterize it, boom, that's a paper mm-hmm. that there's basically, there's lots to go around. There's lots of opportunities to publish to go around. Therefore, it's not as competitive as say if you're working on data from the large hadron collider where there's only one hadron collider right so it's super competitive to get the data and work on it um, so i think just by definition our field is kind of lucky in that we have right now we have more scientific opportunity than we have people to you know work on all those problems there's lots to go around and again it, you know we if next big eruption we have that Hopefully doesn't kill people, but if it does or like disrupt cost the economy a lot of money boom We're gonna get an injection of funding um, Just like we did after the Aya eruption in 2010 and then there'll be even more opportunity for everybody
1: Let's um That's very optimistic and uh, a lovely communal sense of camaraderie to um, To wrap up on that's all the questions that I had uh, Yoshi was there anything you want to say before I let you go?
0: No, I think uh, I think I've said all I need to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for the interview. Thanks for profiling people in the department. I think the department is really rich and diverse in in uh, in all the scientific investigations going on across Earth. Oh, Coming- Chavez diverse in the new hires as well. I mean, people that aren't just old white guys uh, coming in or young white guys. There's there's lots of women being hired, people from other parts of the world. Um, So it's great. I'm really excited. I also like to see the undergrads in our department. They're very diverse, getting more diverse every year. And uh, I just want to, yeah, I just encourage young people to, you know, find somebody that inspires you. Don't worry so much about the subject that you want to study. Worry more about, you know, who's going to be my mentor Um, and things will fall in line after that. Even if you don't end up studying that subject that your mentor did, right. They'll just teach you how to approach life in a successful way. And that's really what's most important.
1: Well, again, Yoshi, thank you for your time, your expertise, your stories and your passion. Uh, It's always a, a delight to chat with you.
0: Yeah, same, Daniel. I miss chatting with you and running the workshops. You're doing a great job in the PME. You're super nice, super inclusive, and I'm pretty impressed how you can capture the essence of all these complicated subjects that you're exposed to in the department. It's really impressive. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca
1: slash learn slash quarantine conversations.